The Investment Podcast, brought to you by M&G. This podcast is for investment professionals only. Hello, and welcome to episode 32 of The Investment Podcast. My name is Aramideo Golano. I'm a senior investment specialist within the private credit group at M&G. I'm delighted to be joined here today by Fiona Hagdrop. Head of Leverage Finance Investments, who has over 30 years of experience in the markets and over 20 years at the firm. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Ramadi. I'm also joined today by Michael George, a senior fund manager within the private credit group at the firm with over 20 years of investing experience and over 15 years of those at M&G. Hello. Hello there. And finally, by Robert Shear a senior direct lending originator with almost two decades of experience in deal structuring and origination. Welcome, Robert. Hello, Armadi. A lot has changed in private markets in recent years. The exponential growth of private credit in the last decade from essentially a cottage industry to a 1.5 trillion market and forecast to grow by another trillion by 2027. Fiona, In your 20 years at the firm, you've been at the forefront of this growth and rise of private credit as an asset class. Can you define exactly what this means? Private credit, very simply put, is a corporate subset of private debt. So it doesn't include real estate debt or consumer financing. That would be caught in a a wider private debt collective. Private credit is corporate lending. Uh, There can be twists and refinements, uh, what of loans to companies with infra-like characteristics or what of asset-based lending to ring-fenced corporate assets. But simply speaking, we draw a ring around corporates when we talk private credit. And those corporates are typically owned by private equity sponsors or by their original founders or both, i.e. they are unlisted. Now, for U.S. investment managers, the private part of private credit often refers to the way in which corporate loans are sourced and bought, i.e. that happens directly and without any bank underwriting or involvement. This means typically that the U.S. definition of private credit excludes leveraged loans or broadly syndicated loans, BSLs, because in the U.S., BSLs are arranged and sold like high-yield bonds. They're daily traded, they're regulated, and their syndication processes and information provision are public style. And how does this change for Europe? Yeah, Europe is different. And to exclude BSLs from private credit is overly to segregate your corporate lending options and to cut your opportunity set in half. And to cut out the biggest and most established private companies. It thwarts gaining access to the whole range of opportunities. So we think that the private in private credit should rather refer to the unlisted status of the investee companies and the status of the lender, because all lending can be private in Europe. And some U.S. managers talk about private credit as some kind of privatization of the BSL and bond market processes, and they they celebrate diverting companies from the visible traded world. But in Europe, we think more symbiotically. 
and we think about what investors might want from private credit, whether they're strategically or tactically allocated, whether they're whole to maturity or looking for liquidity. And that informs the fund type and the approach. Uh, this is not some kind of regulatory arbitrage or a way to create false pictures of low correlation. When default risk is elevated, fundamental credit risk is heightened throughout the corporate world, whether you're marking to a liquid secondary market or not. And fundamentally, in corporate lending, performance depends on the company paying you back. It's as simple as that. And your chances of that are improved hugely through a cycle, particularly by maximizing selectivity and information flow. So in Europe, we resist being so rigid in defining private credit. Even BSLs are private assets here. Uh, and there's access to much more information than would be available in a public bond process up front and through the life of the loan. So the private refers, we think, to the company's unlisted status and the level of extra information that being a private lender can have, whether a company is big or small. And when you think about private credit in that holistic way, then the universe is sizable. Over 800 billion euros in Europe alone. And the point is that corporate lending doesn't warrant excessive segmentation because high selectivity and diversification, paradoxically, should define any loan portfolio for best performance through a cycle. That's interesting, that point you mentioned about being holistic and the blurring of lines within private credit. Robert, what do you think this means for investors and companies? So for companies, I think it means that they don't necessarily have to decide anymore between private credit or going for a bank. So we don't see like private credit precluding banks, but we don't see private credit relying on banks either, right? I mean, if you look at the more recent market turmoil that we have experienced, um, when banks were either unable or prohibitively expensive in underwriting transactions, private credit stepped in, right, by taking down transactions entirely or, you know, alongside other private credit houses. But also in normal times, I think there is definitely room for working alongside. Um, you can think about, for instance, pre-placing a tranche of a large-sized transactions with a uh, private credit house in order to reduce market risk. Or you can uh, think about mid-market deals, where we often now see club deals, which have historically been done by banks alone, been done in you know, consortiums of banks and institutional investors together. So we don't necessarily see a fight between you know, banks and private credit. Um, we do see cooperation possibilities. And I think for companies, that means that they will just have more optionality going forward. And Michael, did you have a view on that? Well, Aramade, for investors, all the things that define mid-cap lending, the diversification, the income generation, the high yield, are today just as true for large cap lending. The yield gap between large and small company loans have narrowed since the general sell-off in 2022. Directly originated loans have their advantages, of course, certainty of execution being one thing, tighter documentation, and on average lower leverage for, as another. So the trade-off between broadly syndicated loans and narrowly syndicated loans, NSL or direct lending, is that the documentation versus liquidity, the broader syndication, the looser covenants, but the greater the secondary market, meaning a chance to change a portfolio's tilt through a cycle. 
we think that a well-diversified corporate portfolio has a place for both large and mid-cap companies, broadly and narrowly syndicated, liquid and illiquid, intermediated by banks or directly sourced. And when people refer to direct lending, they often mean the mid-cap space. Robert, in Europe, this hasn't really been through a proper default cycle yet. What's the outlook from here? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, I think these days people finally realize that mid-market lending is not risk-free, you know, although certain people might have thought otherwise over the past couple of years. Um, I think it's more of a return to normality, right? So, um, yes, um, there is an increase of stress in the mid-market, but nothing which you know, uh, hasn't been experienced before. Um, there are no public figures, to be honest. I mean, it's a pretty private market, of course. Um, and the market is less transparent than the upper end of the market. But you also have to consider that, you know, not all market participants are happily talking about stress they are experiencing in their portfolio. But, you know, from bilateral conversations, um, you know, from reports about uh, lenders taking the keys uh, of companies, and last but not least, by, you know, speaking to lawyers and restructuring firms, which are all flat out busy, you can obviously infer that there is uh, an increased level of stress in the in the market, and you know, interestingly, it's not only to those in those sectors that you know have been in the the center of attention over the past uh, year. I th- I'm thinking about consumer-related businesses, but we're seeing stress more broadly across sectors and also across sectors that have been in the past uh, very popular choices. And why do you think there's broad-based stress across these sectors, even you know the favoured industries that that people typically focus on? I think there's multiple reasons, but you know, think about companies that have undergone a very aggressive M and A strategy in the past, um, and that paired with a loose documentation can lead to fairly high debt piles. And then look at the base rates, how they have developed. You know, coming from basically zero into the three to four percent area. Um, that's obviously a big drain on cash flow. And if the letter doesn't live up to expectations because, um, you know, synergies are not uh, materializing to the extent uh, they were planned or because you have inflationary pressure on your cost base, I mean, that obviously creates problems. So coming back to your initial question, um, there is definitely stress in the system. And we do think it will become slightly worse before it's getting better um, against the macro backdrop that we have at the moment. And by the way, that's also the view that is shared by the large rating agencies. That seems like a pretty broad-based, bleak picture. Is it really that black and white? Well, I mean, maybe I'm wearing my credit hat here. um, But no, I think it's not the easiest of times. I mean, I think, you know, we all have to, to admit that. But I think by no means I'm suggesting or we're suggesting that, you know, private credit is not an attractive asset class, right? But I think it just tells you two things. Um, firstly, you know, manager selection is key, right? Um, you need to have a manager who has long-term experience. You need to have a manager who has encountered higher default cycles in the past. And a manager that has embarked uh, on conservative underwriting standards. And importantly, also the ability to perform proper credit analysis. So not just buying the market, but, you know, credit by credit, um, performing, um, you know, proper analysis. And I think that, you know, to be fair, there's obviously a couple of players out there who have grown very quickly and maybe, you know, where the analyst capabilities have not caught up with uh, the growth they have experienced. 
And last but not least, it favors those houses that do have like in-house restructuring capabilities. You have like a dedicated um, set of people who are experienced with issues like that. Um, an independent view. And last but not least, it also allows the origination teams to remain focused on what they actually have been hired for, i.e. you know, sourcing opportunities for the investors. Yeah, and the second point I want to make, and that touches on what Fiona has um, already alluded on before, I think you know, there's different strategies within private credit, right? There, is, uh, there are riskier strategies, there are less risky strategies. Um, take the uni tranche, for example. I mean, it's a blend of a senior and a second lead piece at the end of the day. You sometimes have um, a first out piece ranking ahead of you, whereas pure uh, senior lending doesn't have then that and by nature should then uh, have a lower default rate and a higher recovery. So I'm not suggesting that you should refrain from one or the other or that one is better than the other, but it just shows you, you know, that not all strategies should be thrown in the same basket. It's true, but I, I observe, though, the, the vast majority of the companies across the spectrum are performing, uh, rising rates notwithstanding, floating rate loans notwithstanding. They can service their debt and they have their refinancing in hand. And again, we have to differentiate between the US and Europe because the inherent liquidity of companies on average is simply higher, several turns of interest coverage ratio higher uh, for, for European companies. It seems uh, the chopping and changing in interest rates this year has brought a lot of uncertainty, which has put a blocker on M&A. Michael, does that mean we're in for a period of lean issuance? Well, it's of course no surprise that M&A is the real engine of activity. And without that, then activity reduces for all. And that's not unique to the private credit market, of course. That's all parts of that too, including private equity. Over the last 18 months, we've seen activity slow more in the broadly syndicated loan market, with some of that slack being picked up by the private credit direct lending market overall. In totality, issuance has been sluggish, but what we are seeing is green shoots coming through for the remainder of the year, evidenced by our conversations with private equity sponsors, advisors and underwriting banks. And what does that mean for sourcing investments? Does that make it difficult from here on? In terms of finding investments, whilst this episode is different in characteristics to what we've seen historically, the challenges it brings to the lending market are not. The core thesis of asymmetric investing is one of basic credit fundamentals. Now is certainly not the time to be chasing transactions, relaxing credits or documentational standards, but this can only be achieved by having a well-resourced and experienced team that have worked through many cycles, ones that have deep relationships to ensure investors' capital is used for the right opportunities. Having strong origination capabilities will differentiate those that can be selective versus those under pressure to deploy capital on less attractive opportunities. Ultimately, there will be a distinction between those that have historically just focused on sourcing rather than on robust selection. You can no longer have just one of these capabilities, especially now when lending into this kind of environment. Activity will of course ebb and flow over time, but what is clear is that both markets are forecast to grow from here, so having capital, flexible capital, to deploy in both markets will be beneficial. That's a great point you make about activity ebbing and flowing. And I think often private credit is seen as a strategic allocation. But are there tactical opportunities as well, given this ebb and flow? Absolutely. The events of the last year have resulted in a repricing of risk assets 
and private credit markets are currently offering unusually higher potential returns combined with defensive characteristics of low duration and security. Wider market volatility and ongoing high levels of uncertainty on issues such as terminal rates, inflation, geopolitics and economic growth forecasts over the past year have highlighted the defensive characteristics of floating rate private credit, whilst also providing a compelling investment opportunity given the widening in spreads. Unlike fixed rate asset classes, which were double hits on duration and credit, the price falls seen in the more liquid parts of the private credit spectrum were driven by credit spread widening only. The scene is secured nature, defensive sector positioning, shorter life and floating rate characteristics of much of this asset class has helped insulate against the duration drag of the year. Private credit also enables investors to diversify further, accessing companies and opportunities not present in public markets. This is an addition to, not a neither or decision, to lend to good quality companies on favourable terms. In addition, the asset class exhibits less volatility than wider public markets, acting as a ballast for investor portfolios. In more volatile times, increasingly issuers will take to private markets to provide capital solutions. Companies and issuers will want surety of financing, which at times public markets cannot provide. And that is valuable. Value for both the borrowers and crucially for the lenders, which should be able to extract better terms than would have been available under wider, more syndicated public markets. It's for all of these reasons that we've seen such investor interest, both from institutional and wholesale investor bases, and indeed why we're seeing the democratisation of private credit unfold currently. And Europe definitely has room to democratise, doesn't it, Michael? It's no business development companies, for one thing, for example, which is a common means for Uh, U.S. wholesale investors to gain exposure to private credit, and it's dominated by locked-in, long-dated partnership structures. Now, I think the regulators get that. They're facilitating finding another way, which is why we've also seen the creation of long-term investment funds like LTIFs and LTAFs, if you read up on your acronyms. But I think they understand that investors need to be able to change their allocations to restore numerator denominator balance and have some access to liquidity at times. And all of this is possible in private credit. Well, we've certainly discussed a lot today on the podcast regarding the state of play in private credit markets. Uh, Fiona, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Michael, likewise, thank you for those insights. Pleasure to be here. And thank you, Robert, as well, for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. To our listeners, we hope our conversation sheds some interesting light on the state of play in the private credit markets. If you have any questions or comments, please do reach out to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more insights on the latest trends in the world of investments. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. For further information, please view the notes which accompany this episode. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments will fluctuate, which will cause prices to fall as well as rise, and investors may not get back the original amount they invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information and views expressed should not be taken as a recommendation, advice, or forecast.